Theaters welcomes you to the exciting world of the movies. Smoking is not permitted in this auditorium. It's the law. Certificates are available at the box office. Thanks for helping us keep the theater clean. As you exit the auditorium, please deposit litter in trash receptacles in the lobby. Please be considerate and don't talk during the show. After that three-week marathon, of rock, I guess I should say this is JB's Driving Podcast. <coughs> PC Paul and Jimmy here with you as always. That's your time. I didn't. I, I didn't offer you some pumpkin pie. I forgot. Did you want some pumpkin pie? No. Uh, can you really hear me? Because I can't hear. I nothing. can hear you. I can hear you fine. I don't know what's going on with my Just headset. Turn, there you go. That's probably better for you, isn't it? Oh, yeah. There yeah, we go. Just had to jack up the... Oh, yeah. That's the, much the, better. The, yeah. It's almost like we're in the same room talking to each it other. It does. But it doesn't matter to them because they think that we're losing our mind already by doing this. It's okay. Um, anyway, JB, JB's Driving Podcast. Uh, uh, as I let off the show, we need to apologize for that three-week monstrosity. That was Robin Hood. Yeah. Uh, I, I've actually gotten a lot of... Um, Except for my cousin saying that he's got that stupid song stuck in his head. Yeah. yeah uh, shame, it, it's been it? all uh, positive reviews. It's terrible, isn't it? Yeah, I hate that song. Damn song. That song is horrible. Uh, honestly, I haven't even... I've, it's Black Friday. We're recording this on Black Friday. I haven't even had the opportunity to edit part three yet. And as I was editing part one and part two, I really began to appreciate how horrible the movie was. <laughs> Just... <laughs> like, an, we, we went through it, we ripped through it. Like, okay, we watched it first. Yeah. It was a bad movie. Then we reviewed it. It was a bad movie. But actually going through it. Yes. And listening and just, it really is a shitty movie. Oh, yeah. There, there, there's nothing, re, except for Rickman, there is nothing redeeming about Robin Hood. No. Nothing at all. I think we made that explicitly clear. <laughs> we did. <laughs> and I, I think we owe it to the audience to, to give them some a couple people requested this movie because it is Christmas time now yes and all those there's individuals out there who are clearly wrong in, in saying that Die Hard is not a Christmas movie we have decided to give the people what they want because of this season so we are going to be reviewing Die Hard this week and next week yes and as I was watching the movie right on the right on the heels of, of Robin Hood it became impressive just how wonderful a movie Die Hard is. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it holds up extremely well. Um, there's very, very few parts of it that are extraneous. I mean, and, I, and, I, and we'll point it out as we go along, but the story is actually written extremely well mm -hmm. for an action movie. And I think it's because action movies were taken a little more seriously back then mm -hmm. um, because the genre wasn't, it was still evolving. You know, you yeah. still were coming out of, you know, the 1970s, the 1960s, 1970s, you had the Westerns. And then when you went into the eighties, they were morphing the Westerns into these new type of action films with the Schwarzenegger films. And then of course, everybody started 
getting in on it. And I think that the big change with Die Hard was you took what would be considered an average guy, mm-hmm. put him in a an extreme situation, and allowed him to still prevail. Yes. That's the difference between Die Hard and a lot of the earlier like Schwarzenegger type films. Because before that, you would have like the American Ninja and the stuff. They had these special skills where really... If you really look at it, John McClane's special skill is not dying. Not dying. That's it. Survive. I mean, he's a survivor. <laughs> he's he just survives. He finds a way to survive. That's that's a, that's a really good point because he did. He he was an ordinary guy dropped in extraordinary circumstances, and you're right that this the, the action genre really evolved in the '70s and '80s. I mean, we go back to the Halloween episode we did. We we talked about John Carpenter. And his inspirations back into the movies was doing westerns. But when he became of age to do movies, westerns were on their way out. And, of course, the first thing he does is Assault on Priest in 13, which was a cop drama slash action type film. I mean, in, in the same guise of, like, the OK Corral. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it was, you know, I, I don't know. I don't want to divert too much away because Die Hard, I want to try to keep Die Hard to two hours. We're gonna try uh, we're, really, we're, yeah, really hard yeah, to keep we're die hard try to our Really hours. hard. <laughs> and the hard part is like when I go edit things, I insert like movie clips and other things to yeah. jazz it up a little bit. So it kind of extends the two hours into more like two hours and fifteen minutes, two hours and Well, that's fine. It's just yeah. Robin Hood was a disaster. Oh, it was it was another <laughs> disaster. It was another I made sure to end part two of the episodes right where you had in the in the outline. We still have one more fucking hour to go. <laughs> <laughs> I think that 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 you know that was foreboding on your part to, yeah. to put that in there. You know, it's 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 interesting how they use the mechanism in the movies. Yeah, well. they, I think somebody said, "Yeah, Paul said that. Yeah, <laughs> we've got one more hour to go, but it's not going to take us that long." <laughs> it did. And it's another hour another and fifteen hour. minutes yeah. to go at least. Oh my god! I just <laughs> editing part two was just oh, I cannot wait to get through this because it's just a just oh, and I and I have the Netflix in the background where I insert the movie parts. Yes. Yeah. It's a terrible movie. <laughs> we are going to do more terrible movies. We are. We yes, are. Yes. Like Robin Hood was a special. And I, I thought the, 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 the difference between Die Hard and, and Robin Hood, another thing is, as I was looking at the DVD extras on Die Hard, the meticulous level of detail that they had in Die Hard, everything. When they missed something, the, the, uh, both the director, who we're going to get to in a second, and, and the, the set director... They were upset about something. I'm, we'll bring it up during the episode. Whereas Robin Hood, nope, Norman Helmets, ah, fuck it, yep, <laughs> doesn't matter to us. Nope, we'll, we'll use all types of a historical movie with historical inaccuracies. Ah, screw it, nobody will notice. No, because we'll, they'll just believe it, and then you'll have a, a group of thirteen-year-old uh, girls who grow up believing everything that happened in Robin Hood. Yes, yes, it just it's it's amazing, but. Well, and fourteen-year-old boys, and fourteen and fourteen-year-old boys who were trying to fill up the thirteen-year-old girls. That's that's what the movies were in the in the nineties, in the eighties. <laughs> the, the movie houses were meant they were invent for teenage promiscuity. Yeah, I think they, that's they they were really. If you took a girl to the movies, you're like, mm, give me some something. Okay, but uh, interesting is is Die Hard is the, the the tie-ins that we have to previous movies that we've already yes. reviewed. I didn't yes. realize that until I went through. It was like first. The only tie-in, the only one I couldn't tie in was Halloween. And I looked, man. Yeah. I looked hardcore. I was going down to, like, set designers and shit. I'm like, there is just no tie-in. There's there none. was no tie-in to Halloween. There's no tie-in. I mean, you can run in. Why don't you run in the tie-ins that we have? I mean, it's, it's interesting. Oh, you, just in general, like, you had uh, 
uh, John uh, McTurney, mm-hmm. who was the director on Predator. Yep. He's the he's the director on Die Hard. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, you had Alan Rickman, we of just, course, which we just had him on Robin Hood, and we just performed Felatio and on the last. Yeah, episode, we, we, we really did, did because did. you know, and and it'll come down a little bit in Die Hard mm-hmm. because I think you had a good hero in Die Hard that took a little bit of the screen time away yes. from Rickman. Yes, um, uh, William Atherton. <laughs> From Ghostbusters, uh, yes. he plays almost the same character in every movie, but he's still, I still love him. I mean, I still love William Atherton. Smart every time guy. you see him, he's great because he plays that role extremely well. Mm-hmm. Um, you had... Uh, did I miss anybody? Yes. Uh, there was, what was the other movie we did? We did Halloween. Yeah, there was no tie-ins to Halloween. We did Ghostbusters. We did Robin Hood. We did Predator. We did... Is, I think that's it. Oh, okay. That's it. There was, yeah. but there was another tie-in to. Um, McTierney brought somebody else over, and I can't think of who it is at this point. Hmm. But uh, it doesn't really matter. Bonnie, uh, Bonnie Bedelia. She's the. You know, this is pretty much the first time we saw her. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the first time that we saw anything from Reginald Van. Vell, um, what's his name? Reginald Van Denning, the the uh, office. What's his Family name? Matters, Family dude. Matters, yeah, Family yeah. Matters. Yeah, he played the same character in Family Matters as he did in Die Hard. <laughs> you know, re- retiring cop. Retiring cop, yeah. It, you know, it was kind of weird because, it, it, like, as, as, as supposedly funny as Family Matters was, and then you had this kind of a serious movie where he was more or less the comic relief at least initially, and did I didn't know if you noticed it, but didn't you notice how the comedy relief, the comic relief, kind of shifted? Because initially it was him, mm-hmm. and then suddenly you started taking him seriously. Oh, oh, I know who else we had. Who? We had uh, uh, Paul Gleason, but Paul Gleason, he didn't have a direct tie-in. I apologize, but Paul Gleason was the second comic relief, and he, of course, everybody knows him from The Breakfast Club. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did tons of movies in the eighties, you know, trading yeah. places and, um, I can't even think of any more right now, but he, <laughs> he did, he did a lot of roles and he of course always either played a jerk mm-hmm. or, you know, just somebody that, that was kind of fucking up the works. That's what Paul Gleason tended yeah. to play. And he did it well. Once again, he, he does that role well, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, that's what you get out of these kind of characters, actors. But then Paul Gleason is kind of the comic relief until the FBI shows up. And then all of a sudden the FBI is the oh, comic oh, relief. Oh, are they ever? So, <laughs> they are well. You know, they but it, it, it's kind of entertaining how they kind of shifted the comic relief in the movie. Yeah, it, it, you're right, it is. It is. They shift around and again, it just makes for a great movie. So this... So, so Die Hard, it's actually based off a book called Nothing Lasts Forever, which was a sequel to a movie, uh, a book called The Detective. And The Detective was a movie where Frank Sinatra starred in it. And the author, Thorpe, he wrote Nothing Lasts Forever in hopes of having a, se- a movie sequel to The Detective, uh, I guess, to cash in on. So since Frank Sinatra was in the original movie, he had some type of option to be in the sequel. But at 75 years of age, not going to be running around a, a skyscraper on your bare feet with glass taking on Alan Rickman and a bunch of uh, wrestlers from the 80s. Just, you're just not going to do that. So they had their eyes set on... And don't uh, forget about Clarence Gilliard Jr. 
Oh, no, I can't. I can't. You can't. You can't. Especially not me. As as many people who know me personally know that I am a super huge Matlock fan. So Clarence Giller Jr. being in this was was always nice for me. And weirdly enough, um, right after I had watched Die Hard... The next morning, I woke up, uh, and and in in the states here, um, we have something called Me TV, which is kind of like old, yeah. you know, old TV shows. And weirdly enough, there was an episode of Facts of Life where the guest star was Clarence Gilliard Jr. Yeah. So who was trying to pick up Tootie at the time? Tootie, remember <laughs> old Tootie? Yeah. So it, it's just it, it's just weird how he kind of just popped up everywhere. Um, I have to appreciate. I appreciate you bringing up the states about the. It's, I forget we do have an international audience. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, that yeah. So, somehow. but it, and it and I thought it was Maryland Entertainment's uh, uh, television, but it's actually memorable entertainment oh, television because really? they have it in mul- in different states. I, I just didn't I was, know that. I thought it was just television geared towards millennials because it's called MeTV. <laughs> right. Ding. So Zinger. The, Zinger, yeah. So, okay. the, so, so Willis's role, McLean was first offered to the likes of oh, Schwarzenegger, Stallone, Reynolds, Richard Gere, and Ford. They all turned it down for one reason or another, and eventually it landed in well, Bruce Willis's lap. Yeah, and he was not an action star at the time. He was actually, he was prior to moonlighting, he was a bartender who did country singing. Uh, and <laughs> then. After that, he he got the series Moonlighting with um, Sybil Shepherd. Uh, it ended up being a hit. I oh, think huge. it was supposed to be just one of these kind of throwaway series. They didn't really think it was going to do that, that well. Song, that theme song. Yeah, uh, Sybil Shepherd. By that point in time, had mm. her career was at least declining, um, <clears throat> because you know so. And and nobody knew Bruce Willis at the time. I mean, he had done very little. I mean, very little. You had Blind Date that came out uh, right around the same. Was Blind Date before or after Die Hard? I can't I, remember I'd at have this to point. Look. I think it was before. Um, Color, but, Color of Night was after this, right? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <sighs> you know who I love in that movie? Everyone. <sighs> Jane March. Oh my. God. Jane March is great in that. Uh, She's great in whatever she does. But oh. but she's not the only one. I mean, there are, everybody in that movie yeah. is good. I we movie. have to review yeah, that movie because that, that is a movie that does not get due. No, that is such a good movie. We're gonna do that in. Our, we'll probably do that like February, March. We'll ah, do that. I, we we push it back a little bit. Push back whatever. No, not too much Bruce Willis at once. Not too much Bruce Willis because I could do every Bruce Willis movie. Unlike Kevin Costner, Bruce Willis. Even the new shitty ones are not that bad. Jane March. Oh my god. Except for I maybe the whole that. ten yards. I, I don't know if one. I can do that one. I haven't seen. I haven't seen the whole nine yards is watchable. The whole ten yards was just come on, man. Was he in the Expendables? He was in, I think, the second one. Second. I one. think the second Expendables. I'm not positive, but he he wasn't in the first one. I know that. I think he was in the second one because they kept they. He was one of those secondary type characters that they shifted oh. in and out. Okay. Like Schwarzenegger only had a five minute cameo because he was governor at the time. Right. Uh, but he was a little more involved in part three, and okay. he wasn't in part one. Okay, but that's another day. Expendables is a good movie too, not a great movie, but a good movie. Better than Robin Hood. Yes, yes. So moving on. Moving on. So, so Willis eventually got the part, and after he got the part, 
I guess the idea of, of this being a this was originally supposed to be a, a sequel to Commando after the whole Sinatra fiasco, and they ditched that idea as well. They're like, no, we're not gonna we're not gonna do that. It's just gonna be a standalone movie, and the script originally had it f- to be the actual movie to take place over three uh, three nights. But after McTiernan uh, looked at Shakespeare's Midsummer Midsummer Night's Dream, they decided, you know what, it's only going to take part over one night to create the sense of immediacy and the uh, okay and the foreboding. I'll use that word again. So, so there we are. So, and it works in one night. I don't know that it would have worked in three nights. I, I, yeah, I, don't I think, think the would've delay would have just. I think the only part of it that that feels rushed. Is the FBI response much much later in the movie? Oh my god! But, that, but that, other that, than that, that everything else is you keep you on the edge of your seat by the amount of adrenaline yes. that just keeps pumping through. It. I, I love if it. you have like a downtime of three days, you know, if it's going over three days, you have to have downtime, which is going to cause the movie to slow down and lack in certain spots, mm-hmm. and it also would cause issues with the the precursor stuff that keeps getting put into the movie as you go along. Right. You're right. You're right. I think yeah, three nights would have been too drawn out, and just I think it would have made it unbelievable for for his survival. You know, just oh yeah, 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 yeah. He wouldn't. There's yeah. no way. I mean, if you have three days, how many terrorists would there have had to have been? Yes, because he he takes out what twelve, fifteen yeah. terrorists in the movie. Yes. McMahon only has a supply of so many jobbers <laughs> that he can right. pump through this movie. Right. Yeah, it only took us seventeen minutes to get to the actual movie. We're on yeah. top. We're, we are on top of things today. So let's. It's, uh, oh yeah, and we are going to compare it to. Uh, is it a Christmas movie? We're throw that innuendo sometimes. Is it a Christmas movie or is it not a Christmas movie? In my mind, it's a Christmas movie. Every Christmas movie does not have to be about the actual holiday. Um, no, but it, they definitely do enough to establish it that it's Christmas time and and that it's it's definitely important that it's Christmas time. Exactly. Because if it's not Christmas time, then he's not going out to California to visit with his kids Thank and his wife. Thank you very so much. it's definitely necessary. And maybe we'll have enough time at the end to talk about if A Wonderful Life is considered a Christmas movie, this has to be a Christmas movie. Yeah, It's a Wonderful Life is a weird one. Um that there is no direct tie to Christmas other than it took place at See? Christmas. And that's exactly the same thing here. There's no Christmas. Uh, you know what? You, like you said, we'll take care. We'll, we'll take a look at it at the end because yes. I, you know, I don't want to get us off track here. Okay. So Die Hard starts out with John McClane, who is Bruce Willis' character, in a plane. He's in the middle seat, and he's talking to this individual next to him. 80s uh, standard stereotypical extra business guy business guy <laughs> and we we first step right away which is I love this I love this about McLean's character is you're showing his weakness right off the bat you're showing a weakness okay. a tie to humanity unlike some of these action movies like we saw Predator you know I love that movie they're all coming out the helicopter as badasses yeah you know just unstoppable force we have McLean divulging that he is afraid of fr- he's a f- Afraid of flying. Yes. He is. I mean, that establishes humanity to him. Well, it, but it also, not just that, this scene is is ridiculously critical to the movie. It's just ridiculously critical to the rest of the movie. And and to have the, for, well, the writers to have the foresight to make sure to incorporate not just his afraid, he's afraid of flying, which sets up later on in the, in the movie where, you know, 
you have him jumping off of the side of a building. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also, you know, of course, the uh, the man telling him, hey, the, be- the, the secret to air travel is, you know, taking off your shoes and socks and, and making fists with your toes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so basically that's, that gets him barefoot and fighting terrorists yep. later in the movie. So like I said, the, there is just every scene is important in this movie, which is something that you generally don't see in an action film. Attention to detail. Yeah. Attention to detail. And so he has a short, it's a very short scene. Um, and they're, so they're, when they land, McLean gets up, and that's when you find out he's a police, a police officer because you see a flash of his gun. Yes. And that's. And then he's. Relax. <laughs> I'm a police. I've, I've, I've been a, I'm a cop. I've been a cop for 11 years. It's just, it, which just establishes that he knows what he's doing, mm-hmm. uh, which takes, gives him some credibility. So you've given him weakness, and you've given him credibility all in one scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, right after that, you see him with the big, huge teddy bear, which also gives credibility... And weakness at the same yeah. time because he has weakness towards his family, but you know it's credible that he's there. Yeah. You know that 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 you know they haven't established why he isn't living there, but they you know they've given you a ton of shit in like two scenes. It's Great ridiculous how much information they've given you just in two scenes. Sublime writing. And just as a side note, this whole plane shot was filmed with uh, inside of an airplane being towed around an airport. That's all it was. The background. So, then we switch to which is the which is the star of the show. I guess you can say star of the movie, which is Nokatomi Plaza. Nakatom, uh, Nakatomi. Nakatomi. Yes, Nakatomi. Nakat. Sorry. Nakatomi. Nakatomi. And I'm the one As they used to, to say Japanese one. woman. <laughs> Nakatomi. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it always makes me think of uh, what's that? That's that old show that was on. Um, God damn it, suck it to me. I don't know. Ah, Is it like a Nickelodeon show? No, 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 no. It was was, um, a variety show back in the... The Gong Show? No, no, no. It was um, uh, Goldie Hawn's in it. And Hmm. that was like their big thing was suck it to me. I I don't know. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But it was... Probably a Canadian show. It's it's just right on the tip of my tongue, and I can't think of it. Probably Canadian. And everybody listening right now is like, you're an idiot. It's this. Yes. But yes. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a call in, so. Yeah, and then thank God <laughs> for that. And they're not doing this podcast. We are. So um, so Nakatomi Plaza. Right. Which, as you say, is, is um, I think, is one of the stars of the show. Yes. Stars of the movie. And it is one of the, it is the central uh, location of the movie. As you say, there's. Not many different scenes in this. No, this you have the locations. you have the quick one in the airport, the quick you know the quick scene inside the airplane, and then you have a couple scenes throughout the movie where you see shots of the city, and there's the one scene where he's he's in the limo, and then other than that, there's uh, the one scene in the um, the convenience store. Yeah. Everything else pretty much takes place inside Nakatomi Plaza. Mm-hmm. And as we'll find out later, we're talking about other versions of the movie. Um, they really pump up the fact that this, this, this tower is the star, or supposedly the star. So we have, uh, 
Harry Ellis, who is a spitting image of Kenny Loggins. Yes. Tremendous job in this movie. But he's also this... He's the the swarmy business guy from the eighties, and that's. <laughs> I mean these these characters are a little paper thin. The the out the exterior characters the the you know yes, they, they are a little paper thin. Stereotypical paper thin, but that's okay. It's an action movie. It's, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah, Shawshank yeah, not, Redemption. No. So she he, there's so so he's following uh, Holly Gennaro in quotes uh, through the hallways as as there's a Christmas party going on. Hey Holly. What about dinner tonight, huh? Harry, it's Christmas Eve. Families, stockings, chestnuts, Rudolph and Frosty. Any of these things ring a bell? Actually, I was thinking more of mulled wine, an ice age brie, and a roaring fireplace. You know what I'm saying? Right. And as you go in the office, there's this beautiful view of downtown L.A., which is actually a a um, 380 foot long background painting that gives the illusion of a busy city, and this painting has been used in other uh, other films as well. Hmm. Yeah, interesting, interesting. So, moving along, they're having a conversation about um, what the hell are they talking about? Here? Well, Ellis is hitting on her. Uh, and trying to convince her to have dinner with him and all that jazz. Uh, and um, she's, of course, trying to back him off. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. What, what else? So, yeah, they're having this, trying to back him off, and then uh, that's when she's sitting at the, the, the desk talking. I guess she calls her daughter up or something. Yeah, well, yeah, she she sits down at the desk after he leaves because uh, she says she's married. Mm-hmm. And uh, then she sits down and she calls home, which establishes, you know, that she has a family and blah, blah, blah. So you had uh, Pauline, who is the caretaker, nanny, whatever the hell. Uh, Lucy is the daughter and John Jr. That honestly doesn't matter that much except for later in the sequels when... Um, John Jr.'s actually in one of the sequels. Yes, John Jr. is one, yeah, one of the sequels. And, and uh, interesting to note, she does use the term Ebenezer Scrooge here as she was talking to Alice. Further establishing this. Yeah, 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 they, yeah, the, another tie into a, a different Christmas story. Correct. Um, which makes sense because, you know, I, well, she wasn't talking to Alice then. She was talking to her secretary. Talking to her secretary. And saying, go enjoy the party. You know, I I don't want to. You know, I I don't want to come off like Ebenezer Scrooge. And um, when she's talking to her daughter, I love this 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 uh, dialogue back and forth. Um, when Holly uh, Holly's daughter says, "Is Daddy coming home?" She says, "We'll see what Mommy and Santa can do, but probably not." <laughs> <laughs> slams daughter, slams out her daughter, then proceeds to slam down the family portrait. Right. Which, you know, why is she so angry, especially when, yeah. like, this is one of the small little details that I felt was, like, it didn't make sense because she gets, she's so angry that she slams down the portrait, but then almost as soon as she sees him and they're alone, she's basically trying to convince him to come yeah. home with Which her. is what we haven't covered yet is the fact that he is a, he's a New York police uh, officer Still wants to stay on the job, 
and, and she she moved out to LA. She she had an opportunity with this company, mm-hmm. um, and took it because uh, you know good money, and she was in, basically going to be an executive VP, and he kind of expected her to flop on her face, and that that comes out in the actually the very next scene mm-hmm. uh, when he's picked up at the airport by Argyle, mm-hmm. one of my. Favorite secondary characters in the movie. Yeah, yeah, def- definitely uh, one of the favorite secondary characters in the movie. So we do switch to the airport where, as you mentioned before, uh, you have uh, John McClane carrying this huge teddy bear yeah. uh, with a big old red uh, ribbon around its neck. It's a Christmas present. Yes, Christmas a Christmas present. present for his daughter, Lucy, mm-hmm. who seems to be the only child that they seem to care about yes. in this film. No I other mean, present granted, <laughs> John Jr. would appeared to be a baby at the time. Um, but then in some shots, I think you actually see him in, this, in the background and he's walking. So why wouldn't you have a gift for John Jr. but a big, huge Jr. teddy bear for huge, Lucy? Huge, massive. So, so she Lucy, who gets lines, John Jr. does not. Exactly, nothing, nothing. <laughs> so um, he, uh, McLean just walking, he, he, he comes across Argyle. It was a first-time limo driver, and also an ex-cab driver. Cab driver, cab which, driver. and this was wisely done because making him—if he's a limo driver, then limo drivers are not very talkative. Mm-hmm. You know, you sit in the back, he sits in the front. You don't talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Cab drivers, on the other hand, especially in the 1980s, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, nowadays not so much, especially with Lyft and all that other jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, they were very, very talkative. They they talked a lot, mm-hmm. uh, which allowed you allowed them to have this setup where you could introduce all this background information on John McClane and you know, uh, and and why he's in New York and she's out here. They can give you all this information because it's a talkative cab guy. Mm-hmm. Which, which is, it's smart to do it that way. Again, another, another intelligent thing to do is the way they introduce the backstory. And this is, this is a sign of great writing. The sign of great writing is when you move the action along while filling in the backstory at the same time. It's an art that you have to develop. It really is. Because a lot of people just cram in scenes just to provide movies for no reason. Whereas this is part of the action. Him going from the airport over to the... The plaza in a limousine, which is also very important. Who got the limousine for him? Right. You know, so it's 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 extremely gr- it's extremely good writing. Yeah, but you don't even think about that no, until don't. a little later. You don't because you just kind of assume that his wife got him the limo. You do, yeah, you do assume. Yeah, but again, it's just it shows you this is how you're supposed to write. Is you're supposed to character development during the actual action, not just two characters talking and picking lint, as one of my good friends would say. Also, the bear. That yeah. big bear was saying, that's actually John McTiernan's bear, and it made a cameo in The Hunt for Red, Octo- Red October as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. I didn't even hear now, about that. Now the audience does know. That's how much research we put into this, people. <laughs> that's how much we care about you. So, but anyway, during the ride, you find out that John and Holly have been separated for about six months. Like I said, she got an opportunity and went out there. He kind of felt like she was going to fall flat on her face, so he stayed behind. And I think it was more of an ego thing. You know, it definitely seemed like an ego thing. Um, the The cool thing was was that, like, at the end of the ride, and this is the first time I ever heard this song, yes. they play Christmas and Hollis. 
by Run DMC. I, it's my favorite Christmas song uh, to this day. It's still my favorite Christmas song. Great song. Um, nice. And you, I don't know if it was, I'm sure it wasn't made for this movie, but at the same time, I had never heard it before this movie. So it, I love the fact that they played this song in this movie. Yes, and it's because it's a Christmas movie. Yeah, well, once again, yeah, another tie into a Christmas. Yeah. Uh, they keep doing that, which, you know, how are you going to argue that it's not a Christmas movie at this point in time? And we're only 10 minutes into it. Exactly. So Argal drives them up to Nakatomi Plaza, which is desolate at this point. Yeah. And says that he'll, and Argyle informs him that he'll just be hanging around. Yeah, he's going to hang around because... You know, he's going to find wait around to see if things work out between John and Holly. If not, then he's going to hook him up with a place to stay. Yeah, which is really cool. Which is really <laughs> outrageously cool, um, even though, you know, this is, it also sets up one of the two big flaws in, in these two scenes, which I'll get to in a minute, but go ahead. So we have uh, McLean walks to the front desk of Nakatomi Plaza, and that's where the security guard... Because they're so high tech here, it says if you want to find uh, your wife, uh, use this this computer, the computer keypad. So of course he ty- he types in McLean, and it doesn't come up. And then he types in Gennaro, and that's when it comes up, and he finds out that she's on floor thirty. Yeah, and this computer. Before we get to this idea, well, you you, you allude to here is that. At first, he's like, if you want to find or use the keypad, then he says, oh, they're, they're the Christmas party. They're yeah. the only people. <laughs> they're the like, only why, people in the building. Why, why would you? Uh, why would you even ask him why, to look it up? Why, why would you even ask? Yeah. There's a Christmas I'm party. I'm looking for my wife, Holly Holly McLean. She's supposed to be at a Christmas party. Well, look her up here. Okay. The only people in the yeah. building are on floor 30 at a Christmas party. But you should look her up on the machine. Look on the machine. You fucking moron. Also, also note that there was only like eight people with the last name of G in the entire building, which is a huge building. I yes. That, it's like, wait a second. There should be like list. Well, when he G. types in McLean, <laughs> and there's only like three or four people that with like an MC name in there. I'm like, uh, uh, there's 36 floors in this building. Yeah. I mean, you're going to tell me. That that there's only that it just didn't make any sense. Doesn't make um, any but sense. But no, the stupid security guard, such an ass. Such such an ass. <laughs> such an ass. So, and there's also a Christmas tree in the background. Big ass Christmas tree in the background because it's a Christmas movie. <laughs> <laughs> so John ends up John ends up going to up the elevator, and there's this big Christmas party going on. And with the only people in the building. The only the people way. in the building. So this is the only place he would have went through anyway, even though he had to look at on the old Nintendo. And take the express elevator, which I found interesting as well. Express elevators um, tend to only go to certain floors, don't they? Yes. Yes. Okay, I was just floor, wondering because... Floor. Oh, okay. All right. I've never been on one, so I don't really know. So. You also note that the thirty, this thirty, the thirty fourth floor where the party is being held, um, there's this giant rock with dri- water dripping from it. It's a, re- a recreation of Frank Lloyd Wright's Falling Water. The set director, the individual I, I talked about earlier, um, who's on part of the D, uh, the DVD commentary, he said the backstory in, on that is that Japanese co- corporations were buying up America, and it, that. Nakatomi Corporation had bought Falling Water and reassembled it in their own building. Huh. Yeah, interesting, interesting. 
Yeah, well, and at the time, it was kind of a big deal. Uh, the Japanese were buying up a lot of American... They still, they still to this day, own a lot of American interests. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, John's walking through the party. This guy just walks up to him and kisses him on the cheek. Yeah, yeah, uh, which... I found that, a, you know, this, that was the one piece that was kind of like a little weird. You know, his reaction to that was of pure disgust. Like, it, you know, it was definitely a very 80s reaction. Yes, because nowadays <laughs> he would have been crucified if he did that same reaction. Yeah, I, I, I think that would be the one scene that probably doesn't hold up PC-wise, <laughs> PC at least. Paul. Yeah. Is on the case. Let uh, me tell you but something. It, I mean, it, but it, it made sense at the time, and it made sense with yes. the character. He's from New York. It, it wouldn't have been something that would have happened in New York, but in California, it would have happened. Don't give a shit, Jimmy. Doesn't give a shit. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. So his response was, Jesus, California. <laughs> yeah, seriously. God. And that's Fruit when, and nuts. Fruit and nuts. A fruit with nuts. So, Takaki recognizes John. Takagi? Taka- whatever his name is. What the I, hell, dude? I, 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 yeah. You are married to... I know. It's terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> I am My not. kids are part Japanese. It's terrible. <laughs> 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 Don't give a shit, Jimmy. Don't give a shit. Apparently not. Takagi. A good name, too, man. I love that name. It's a strong name. Yes. It's a strong, honorable name. Samurai. So he recognizes John... And um, they have a little small talk, and that's when it's revealed that he's the one that sent the limo for him. Yes. Because he's an honorable man, and he takes... Uh, um, well, it makes sense, too, because the Japanese were real heavy on family. Mm-hmm. Uh, they still are. You they know, did very, very well, big in the family. Sure. I'm just saying, at the time, it definitely was... You know how I know that? <laughs> I don't know. Takagi... <laughs> Where's where's Hero at? <laughs> where's Kenji at? <laughs> All right, let's go. All right, let's yeah, let's go, let's go. So uh, he has he has uh, escorts McLean to Holly's office. They walk in on Ellis in his purple suit, snorting cocaine. Ellis, I was just making a call. This is uh, the nurse phone. I want you to meet John McLean, Holly's husband, Holly's policeman. Alice is in charge of international development. Heard a heck of a lot about you. <laughs> Miss something. Can I get you in? Yeah, right on the deck. Why? And it, this was one of the weird things. Like, why is he in Holly's office snorting cocaine? Unless he doesn't have an office of his own, but you would think that he would. He will because he's he's in a higher up, right? He's in a higher up with the organization. He's not higher than Holly. But he's he's a higher but up. But he's a higher he would up. Have his yeah. own office. I would think so. But I thought that was weird that he was decided to go into Holly's office to snort cocaine. <laughs> but whatever. He's, maybe he's like a wolf pissing Mark in his territory. Who knows? So that's when, uh, so he's all, Kenny Logan. I gotta cut loose, cut loose. Get he's all coked up here. Yeah. So and, he has to make sure that <laughs> he lets them know that, show him the watch. Show him the watch. Show him the watch. Later. Well, go on, show him. What are you embarrassed? It's just a small token of appreciation for all our hard work. It's a Rolex. I'm sure I'll see you later. Is there a place where I could wash up? Because Holly shows up and and sees her husband for the first time, and the first thing out of Ellis's mouth is, "Show him the watch." 
that's exactly how it sounds too. Show them the watch. And yeah. it's like, because he got a Rolex. Now, of course, at the time, Rolex was the shit. watch. Yeah. I don't know if it still is, because I don't give a shit about watches, yeah. especially since I have a clock on my phone. Yeah. Who so who cares about watches at this point it? in time, except for watchmakers? Don't give a shit. Jimmy don't give a shit. <laughs> Jeez. Um, so, and then that Rolex actually plays an important part later in the movie as well. Very, yes, very important ex- part. Yes. Once again, another setup for later on in the movie. Um, comes at at the end, but go ahead. So then it's the scene switches. There's a foreboding music. Third time we've used that word in this episode. Well, and and you know why? Because they did a really good job of letting you know what's, you know, setting things up and letting you know what to expect. I mean, you have a truck driving down the street. If you put happy music behind it, you're not really going to take it too seriously, are you? (laughs) Start playing the freaking ice cream truck music, you're going to think that kids are going to run out and get ice cream. But if you play music like... Then you know know something bad's about to happen. We are the bad guys. (laughs) The bad guys. We're the bad guys. (laughs) And you notice on the side of the truck, there's a a Pacific Courier, which means messenger of peace. Uh, the set director, again, um, that I mentioned before, he said he used the same name and graphic for the movie Speed, which we went to go see in the movie together. And oh, Die God, Hard. Yeah. Yes, we did. And Die Hard with a Vengeance, the truck that blows up at the beginning of that film. So yeah, you, I don't remember that at all. So you, you don't remember? Just throw that in there. So then we switch back to John and Holly, where, where John's washing up from his uh, long trip over from New York, his cross-country trip. And they're talking about the relationship right now. Yeah, and Holly's definitely like, yeah, I think you should come home and stay with us. And me, the kids miss you, and I miss you. So, you know, it's definitely establishing that she's really doesn't want to be separated at Mm -hmm. this point, which is completely different than five minutes ago when she's slamming (laughs) down the damn picture of him it doesn't make any sense. I mean, I guess she could have be a little frustrated, but to slam down a picture of her family, which, by the way, is also another piece that is done on purpose that later gets referenced to because Rickman picks it up and yeah. finally realizes. But, uh, you know, there, every single thing that happens in the movie has a follow-up. Mm-hmm. Great, um, great writing. But then the weird thing is, is like he's just like, well, where are you going to stay? Well, I was going to stay with Captain Shits a lot. But the problem with that is, is that Captain Shits a lot. Yeah, I don't remember his name, and it doesn't really matter. Um, so <laughs> he's gonna, he's gonna, you know, and she's like, oh, well, that's all, that's all the way Pomona. You'll be in the car for forty-five minutes. But the the thing is, is that he just had the conversation with Argyle and said he had no plans. So that is one that is one of the little tiny flaws. Little, little tiny flaws, yes. Um, but you know, because he had no plans, but then suddenly he had plans to stay in Pomona. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Just I, I don't know if that was a flaw in the movie or if he just kind of made it up on the spot. It's hard to tell. Hard to tell. So they're getting along until he brings up the fact that he changed. She changed her last name to Gennaro. Yeah. Then and they kind of get in a tiff over that, and that's when a couple barges in. Yeah, a couple making out, making kind of yeah. barge into the room Dog where he's up. cleaning up. Uh, so she decides to walk away, being the bigger person in this situation. Mm-hmm. 
uh, then we jump down, we see the terrorists show up. <laughs> show up. Yeah, this, yeah the, the terrorists start showing up where the, the uh, security guard, who knows that there's only security, there's only the it's Christmas a- party going on there, <laughs> and has no reaction to a you know, suspicious truck coming downstairs. Yeah, it's not like it's the middle of the day, okay? We're at night now, okay? The, the sun is setting in December, so it's got to be after 5 mm-hmm. in L.A., uh, why would you have couriers coming in or any other reason? But he has no reaction, and they walk in, like, telling the little story, which is just to distract him, obviously, but at the same time, it's just how stupid <laughs> can a security guard be? <laughs> can, pre- can be pretty damn stupid, we'll say that. He had no reaction when no, no reaction. McLean came yeah, in. Yeah, nothing at it was all. just like, oh, no, just, just use the computer and go on up. He didn't ask for ID. He didn't do anything. He just sent him right it's up. Probably all he says is just, oh, just use the computer. Yeah. I'm just here for my eight hours. That's when um, Theo and uh, what's that? What's that? What's the what's his name? The German terrorist. This one, the one looks like uh, Van Hammer from WCW. Ah, I forget his name. Uh, it's like the oddest couple they could pair. And Theo's talking about basketball, just you know. Are you? Oh, that was the other. The other dude I couldn't. I couldn't remember earlier mm-hmm. was. Um, uh, was it Hans? Hans, maybe. No, no, Hans Gruber. That's Rickman. No, oh, no. I'm sorry. Then it was uh, the one that they kill his brother. Yeah. What's his name? Shit. Hold on, it's, it's back here somewhere. Whatever his name is, it come up. Carl. Carl. Okay, yes. but when I Hans and Carl. when I saw Carl, I thought he was the dude that I thought he was in Ghostbusters too, and then I then because I got him confused, he was actually in the Money Pit. Because oh, okay. if you remember, Sigourney Weaver is in the Ooh. Symphony in the first one, but in the second one, she works as an art, you know, with the art in the library mm-hmm. in Ghostbusters too, which makes no sense whatsoever, but. Uh, that's why I was getting confused by the whole thing. I kept thinking he was, when I was trying to make tie-ins to the other movies that we had already done, mm-hmm. but it was actually Carl was the conductor and the oh. rich uh, ex-husband to Shelley Long in The Money yeah, Pit. Yeah, he he's a tall guy with blonde hair, looks straight out of Scandinavia, actually. Yeah, and the weird thing was, was they, he got all kinds of offers to do more action films and shit, but he didn't want to do it. Um, he didn't want to do it. Yet yeah, enough. he decided that he didn't want to do it, and he just he ended up doing maybe uh, ten films total, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but never really did another action film other than this one. And actually, it looks more like Barry Windham. Let me change that. He looks instead of Van. It looks more like Barry Windham. So I know that he doesn't even come into it a little later, but whatever. Yeah. So they they so they distract the security guard who just looks at him dumbfounded, and eventually gets a bolt to the head for his troubles. And that's when Theo runs behind the, the, uh, the desk, the desk, and starts doing what he needs to do. Um, meanwhile, uh, Carl goes out and takes out Dick Buckus, the other security guard. Yeah, he does look a little bit like Dick Buckus, but he, he gets taken out with a, a flash grenade, which was even necessary. I have no, no. idea. One Why was it guard necessary? Wearing like a Monday Night Football. Jacket, you know, nothing necessary. He just walked in and could have just clocked him. Yeah, yeah, or well, he ends up shooting him. So after this, he could have just—I don't know—shot him. I mean, 
why would a security guard walking around even have a gun? And even if he does have a gun, why would he have the gun out? So you have the gun out. All you would have to do is come around the corner and shoot him. But you use a flash grenade? Seems a bit excessive. Seems excessive. And this is a point where McTiernan was very skeptical about using terrorists in the movie, the term terrorists. He wasn't really comfortable until he figured out how to put, this is really weird, he's director from Hollywood, how to put a little bit of joy into it, how to make it more appropriate for summer entertainment. So rather than getting involved with politics, he decided on it, there are just some really good thieves. Well, and that's the thing, but initially they come across as terrorists. Yes. Uh, and, and that's why even in my write-up for the, for the movie, I initially start writing them up as terrorists, and then I start kind of shifting to calling them thieves. Um, because they are. I mean, they end up being thieves and not, you know, I mean, they are terrorists to the, the, to the level that they're causing terror amongst people, but they're not doing it for political reasons, even though they keep tying in these nonsensical political reasons. Correct. But it's also important that the audience right now, we don't realize that. No, not we yet. We do not realize Not yet, that. not so, yet. So this is when the Pacific Courier truck backs up into a loading dock and enter... Um, Hans Gruber, Alan Rickman, the other star of the of the movie. Yes, who's, who is like kind of like the in the middle of terrorists as they're <laughs> emptying out. Um, interesting to note, just like Robin Hood, and this was at Rickman's first feature length film. He was uh, formerly a, an award winning actor on Broadway. He was very reluctant to sign on to this. Uh, he'd been told Hollywood Reporter. His first impression was like, I, I read the script, and I said, what the hell is this? I'm not doing an action movie. Hmm. But thankfully, he did it. Yes. Thankfully, I, he did it. I mean, I, this... Okay, I will say this. I think there are other people that could play Hans Gruber. Um, Jeremy Irons. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an interesting pick, but there were a couple other people that could play Hans Gruber. But no one else could have played the, sh- the sheriff of Nottingham in Robin Hood. No. No one else could have done that. No. He killed that movie. He killed um, Actually, he resurrected. I don't, I don't know what you were saying. He, that movie was already dead. He gave well, it yeah, some life. Yeah, he gave it a little bit of life. He made that movie a zombie. Um, but, you know, other people could have played Hans Gruber, but he played it extremely well. Extremely well. Um, and I think it adds a, a little bit of levity to the, or, or, or not levity, but um, brings it up a level. Yeah. Uh, does, you know, I think does. it gives it a little more credibility. Maybe that's the better word. As I said in, in Robin, he is a thespian. Yeah. A thespian. Oh, yeah. And I mean, well, that's just like bringing in John Luke Picard to, to in an, into the middle of a comedy. It get, brings it up just a notch. Just a notch. A classically trained actor. Right. Brings it up a notch. Also important to note. Shakespearean actors at tend the time, to do that. I mean, Leslie Nielsen was a yeah, Shakespearean he, yeah, actor not, at one point of, in time. Not a lot of people know that, but yes, he was. And, you know, he would anybody else have done as well in those Naked Gun movies or the Naked Gun show or anything else? I don't think so. No, his reactions. Yeah, his, I mean. His, his reactions in that movie. He sold those movies. Mm-hmm. And, and, I mean, I like spoof movies, but there's a definite difference between a spoof movie like Naked Gun mm-hmm. And like superhero movie or Hot Shots, yeah, yeah, exactly. As much as I like, you know, Charlie Sheen. 
<laughs> yeah, right. I know you got the tiger blood running through you. Yeah. Well, even hot, you know, you had hot shots, but even beyond hot shots, uh, another one was Top Secret Top that secret. everybody really liked back in the day. And I never thought that that was at the level of like a lethal weapon. No. Or, or, uh, not a lethal weapon, I'm sorry, loaded weapon, loaded weapon. or, you know, uh, a naked gun. So, I don't know. I don't know how the hell we diatribed on that nonsense. I don't know. So it doesn't matter. So, but important that when they were filming the scene with Hans Gruber yes. coming out of the truck, they had not yet decided on the end scenes. It was very much in flux. So, and this, this actually haunts the set director to the day, is that you notice the truck isn't big enough for an ambulance at this point. No, no, it the, definitely is not. And we'll, we'll touch on that later at that moment, but the, the truck inside is not big enough for an ambulance. No, they come out of basically just a regular truck, and it looks like it's just big enough for them. Exactly, just big enough for them. So he switched, so, so Theo is, is uh, using DOS old-ass computers to break into the system, essentially putting the entire building on lockdown, yes. locking the underground uh, garages, I mean, th these people had a plan. Hans Gruber's group had a plan. Each had a role. What is wrong with you pronouncing names today? What, what did I do now? You said Hans Gruber. Hans. Thank so, you. Sorry, Hans. <coughs> a little, Han bit, Hans little Gruber. bit of decorum, sir. I'm sorry, sir. <laughs> so they also installed Huey Lewis as the, as the new security guard. Yes, <laughs> that dude looks like Huey Lewis. <laughs> Huey Lewis. I mean, initially I thought it was Huey Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like one, he just looks yeah, like him. He's a spinning image of Huey Lewis. Yeah. And he was one of the last to make it, too. Yeah, he was. He was. He doesn't die till the end. So we're um, switched back to Holly's office, and that's where John, very important, very important, takes off his shoes to make fists with his toes on the carpet, mimicking what that guy told him to do to yeah. get over his fears of flying. God damn it, it worked. So uh, the downstairs, as, as I just mentioned, that the terrorists each have their own role. Yes. And that's when Carl's brother is dealing with the phone lines. Yeah, I love how we keep calling him Carl's brother because literally I have no idea what the hell his name is. I'm sure. Franz, I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. Some guy, some guy who has shorter blonde hair but with glasses. Yeah. He, he just looks like a... Swedish ski instructor dork. <laughs> he does. <laughs> he does. <laughs> Swedish, we'll just call him that. Swedish ski instructor dork is working on the, uh, is, is working on the, the phone lines. Meanwhile, um, Carl. Carl, he doesn't have the patience. Carl says, I'm, I'm not enough of this shit, so I just got this chainsaw, and he just chainsaws all the phone lines just in time. Conveniently he, enough, of course. John McClane was on the phone with Argyle at the time. Yeah, conveniently enough. You know, because the, the odds of that are probably pretty slim. Slim to none, yeah. But that's okay. Suspension, disbelief. Meanwhile, Hans, and this, I love this scene, because you have a Christmas party going on. Not going to be loaded with people with guns, if any guns at all. Yeah. Meanwhile, Hans takes the, the, the elevator opens to the 34th floor. And he has these, he's flanked by individuals with heavy machine guns exiting as if they're going into, I don't know, the Predator. predator right, they're the about predator. to go to war. They're about to go to war. You know, they're, they're slow, they have their guns up like, you know, 
They could be popping out at any second. We got to be ready. <laughs> These people were just running around drinking and grab, playing grab ass with women in the 80s. Yeah, because that's kind of what happened. They could have just walked out and just, you know, start shooting. Yeah. But they were very careful. Even the one guy looked like he was auditioning for a guest commercial with the, with the way that he was exiting. He had the jet black hair. You have to go back and look at because he I mean, he looked like he was he wanted to be running on a beach with just his boxers on at this point. Maybe <laughs> right. It was it was just cheesy. And they all and again they all look like '80s wrestlers, '80s jobbers. And they start taking the party, but somehow because John McClane is still in Holly's office, uh, they start taking people out of the offices one by one. Mm-hmm. Uh, they get to the office. They're just about to open Holly's door. That's right. That's right. But then uh, the office before, the guy and girl who walked in on <laughs> Holly are fucking on the desk. She's topless. She's so topless. The, um, that is, and this is not an extraneous oh, scene. So it is not. Mm-hmm. It is a necessary scene because it distracts the terrorists. Oh, the terrorists look nice. in on the topless chick, of which they would do, which gives John McClane enough time to escape, setting up the rest of the movie. It is once again, this is not a PC Paul this moment. Is not a, this is not a PC Paul moment. So this is definitely not scene. gratuitous. It was necessary scene to distract the terrorists. Because how the hell would he have gotten out of there if they weren't distracted by a uh, hot-ass topless chick yeah. who was just getting, uh, you know, by the way, plowed. fully fully clothed <laughs> at the bottom, but getting plowed on a desk somehow. <laughs> <laughs> she's, he, could, he could wait. He's wearing pants, and she's, she's got her panties on, but somehow was getting plowed on a desk. I'm not sure how that works, but... That was what happened. They could, I mean, you saw how they busted into that room. They were they couldn't wait. Yeah, man. Oh, yeah. He probably got caught in his zippers or something. <laughs> probably in pain. So, McLean... Frank and Beans. Frank and Beans. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So, uh, so John ends up escaping up to... The, 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 he goes to the 32nd floor, which is not finished. Yeah, this doesn't make any damn sense to me whatsoever, by the well, way. Here's, here's the really interesting... The, the building... Nakatomi Plaza is Fox's headquarters over there. Oh, and is it? it was okay. still under construction at the time. So when you see Bruce Willis walking through the construction site with his gun over overacting a little bit, that was really what it looked like. They were still working on that building. No, oh, okay. So that wasn't a that wasn't a set design piece. That's how it looked. Like the pieces of plywood that were stacked up and all that. Right, right. Drywall, that was I mean, and that's fine. It looked like a, a floor under construction. My issue isn't that the floor was under construction, even though they've already been there for at least six months. Mm-hmm. Uh, my issue is is that he then goes up to the next floor, which is the 33rd floor, mm-hmm. which is fully functional computer, you know, floor. Mm-hmm. Well... It, and that just did... That part doesn't make sense to I me. got nothing. Yeah, it just didn't make sense to me why this 32nd floor would be under construction... But the 33rd floor was fully functional computer floor. Mm-hmm. That just didn't make sense to me. I don't know why. It's not, necess- it's not even that interesting not of that a interesting. thing to point out, but it, it's just weird. Just weird. So as John is, as, as McLean's up on the, the 32nd floor, Hans is, uh, he's got all the Chris's party goers, including the topless chick. It was getting plowed, gathered up in the in the uh, which you never see again. Never see again. She didn't have a chance to really grab her clothes. No, but 
somehow you never you don't see like a naked topless no. chick sitting amongst everybody else. <laughs> they escape through the roof. You still see. She's on the roof, waving her arms. And her big boobs are just flying around. That's actually funny. So Hans is he's got everybody gathered up there and he starts reciting this speech about Nakatomi's corporate greed and starts reciting the C V of Tagaki's. Going through how he went to Yale Law School, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, Harvard. Yeah. And he's walking through the crowd of of uh, most of the men are Japanese. I you notice at this point. Somehow the party transformed from well, I don't know if I'd go Caucasians. as far as to say most are, but there's definitely a large amount of Japanese yes. people. And any of these Japanese men could have fit the stereotypes, fit the CV at this point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they oh, weren't yeah. there before, but now it's something they're there. And he's conveniently <laughs> just directing it at all the Japanese people. <laughs> I would have, you know what would have been great? Is if just the white breadest white dude just stood up and <laughs> That's me. I'm Takagi. I'm Takagi. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just been awesome. It is. Yeah. It's just totally fucked yeah, up just, Hans Gruber. Uh, <laughs> what? He's just like what? <laughs> About a racist? What the hell? <laughs> Hans, not Hans. So then, then they take uh, the Takagi. Eventually, stands up as you said, saying, "That's me." Ah, he says something here. Han says something here, and they take him through the elevator up to his office, and that's when. Oh, he said that it's a night that he's wearing a nice suit. Nice suit. John Phillips, London. I have two myself. Yeah, and and that should have been your first tip off. Tip off that this is not about terrorism. Terrorism. Yeah. This is about money. It's not about corporate um, greed. And it doesn't take very much longer before they tell you that, but it is the very first notion that this doesn't have to do with corporate greed. Mm-hmm. So, they, so they end up in Tagaki's office where they go to this, this model that's laid out on the table. Yeah. Um, it looked like a bridge. A bridge or something. Yeah, maybe it was the bridge. bridge the bridge to nowhere in Alaska, possibly. A bunch I don't of know. nowhere. And then they take Tagaki to the, I guess it's Takagi. Takagi to the boardroom. Holy Christ, dude. Yeah, keep correcting me. Okay, I will. Yeah, keep correcting me, because I, I I'm not going to be able to this right. And that's where we see... Takagi. Uh, Takagi, yeah. <laughs> so, so Hans, Theo, Carl, and Carl's brother. Yeah, Carl's it? brother. Dork was Swedish... Swedish, Swedish director Dork, yeah. They're trying to... This is when it's real. They're trying to get the, the, the code, uh, the key code from... Takaki. <laughs> I can't do it. I can't do it. Takagi. Takaki. Takaki sounds like Pukaki. It is a completely different thing, sir. I can't do it. I'm trying. I just can't do it. I okay. Can't do That's it. all good. <laughs> Hans. So, Hans. Hans Christian Andersen. Yeah, Hans Christian Um. So, this is shit. I got to concentrate here. I can't concentrate. Okay. No, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. So this is the first. This is the this code is the first piece of the vault which has six physical locks, and an electromagnetic field, and there's apparently six hundred forty million dollars locked up in this. This. Um, yeah, six hundred forty million in bearer bonds, which essentially has the equivalent of what two dollars today. Uh, well, at the time, it definitely was a lot. <laughs> Nowadays, uh, you know, when you're under a billion, I'm not sure that it's really worth blowing up a building in Ford. 
I just don't know I, at uh, this point. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and with as many people would have been sharing that $640 million, <laughs> I think I, I, it, it definitely makes you think, is Han sending them off one by one to get a bigger cut? Is that what's going on here? <laughs> you. <laughs> Franco... <laughs> And unnamed guy number three, <laughs> go on up to the thirty-second floor and check this shit out. <laughs> Not all of you at the same time. No, 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 no. We don't, no, no, don't no, all no, of you no. at the same time. That would make too much sense. Yeah, <laughs> it's one guy. I'm not going to send up five of you to take him out. I'm just going to send two of you up. He's got a better shot at taking both of your asses out. I guess he was a big fan of uh, hip to be square. Then that's why Huey Lewis was left out of everything. Yeah, Huey Lewis was just he on was, the desk. He was gonna get out. his cut for sure. Oh yeah, he was gonna get his shut, cut for sure. Um, <laughs> it's a fuck. Where am I? Uh, Takagi so, refuses. Oh yeah, Taga- Takagi refuses. Um, after a count of three, but, oh, I'm sorry. Let's go. Let me get back here. So they keep on pestering Takagi about giving them the code. Takagi. Takagi about giving the code, and he just refuses. And that's when Hans takes out his gun. I'm going to count to three. Count to three. I'm going to count to three. There will not be a four. Give me the code. One. Two. Three. I don't know it. I'm telling you. Get on the jet to Tokyo and ask the chairman. I'm telling you, you're just going to have to kill me. Okay. He counts to three in Takagi. I got that wrong. It's all good. He counts to three. <laughs> and then the scene switches over to which is an obvious dummy. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's behind <laughs> Takagi's head. Blows his head off. I mean, literally, what was he? He was shooting like a 22 and just back. And to the left. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a goddamn cannonball came out the back of his fucking head. And it's everywhere, man. Potato cannon. I just blew his head. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even sure there's that much blood in a head. But it's every goddamn where, man. Bunch of corn syrup. (laughs) It must have been sticky. Oh, shit. That's... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the best part is obviously a dummy. <laughs> They're not messing around for 640. No. <laughs> there is literally no reason to shoot them. There's none whatsoever. Because it's completely useless information anyway. It takes Theo, what, 35 seconds to figure out what the hell it is? Yeah. Because he's like, you sure you can break? Oh, yeah, that's what I'm here for. Like, we just blew his head off. So, so not only are you going to be freaking uh, hung up for grand, you know, grand larceny, not the larceny, burglary, you're going to get a murder count on as well. Yeah, but he doesn't care because they were going to kill him all at the end anyway. He knew they were going to kill him all. <laughs> he just blew his head off. But there's another, there's another reason why they switched to the scene of just a dummy. If you notice throughout the movie, whenever Rickman fires a gun... You don't really see him firing the gun except for when he's using the machine gun because he's deathly afraid of firing weapons. He's never, he's a thespian. He doesn't use weapons. 
So that's whenever you see sometimes whenever someone dies and it's at Rickman's hand, you don't physically you don't physically see them shooting a gun at him. Huh? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I did not know that. Little little, little piece of uh, information. That's what we provide there. After you heard of five minutes of me you know, <laughs> dying here. Takaki. Well, at least you don't have to say his name anymore. <laughs> Thank God. God damn it. Ah. Uh, okay. Then John McClane, he's he's actually been watching this entire scene unfold. Yeah, he's probably he wondering has, how much has, blood is the man's head. I as mean, well. Jesus Christ, there's there's fucking thirty seven floors in this building, but somehow he ends up back in the room where they're questioning Takagi. <laughs> I, I why I have no idea why he would go there. Oh no! So he's watching the entire thing unfold. He makes a noise though, of course, and that's when. Um, uh, Hans and the sweetest dork brother. Does he he run out there too, along with Carl to find out what happened? I I, I don't I, I think so. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> so they go searching for McLean, but can't find him. Meanwhile, the terrorists are wiring up the roof. Yes. And all the the ex the the extra terrorists. <laughs> the extra terrorists who aren't going to get their cut. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the ones that the aren't jobbers. Carl, the Swedish ski instructor, <laughs> Hans, or Theo. Or Huey Lewis. Don't forget Huey. Huey Lewis. Don't forget Huey. Everyone else was up wiring up the roof. <laughs> if one we don't know why they're wiring the roof. <laughs> Maybe they're trying to put in a new phone system after they cut the old phone system. Perhaps. It's possible. That's what they're going to do. They're going to charge them a mint for the use of the new system. <laughs> yeah, that was the whole, that was the whole scheme. Yes. We're going to cut down the phone system <laughs> and then charge them to put in a new one. <laughs> we do this in all the big buildings in L.A. We are the only providers, so you're going to be paying a premium. Eventually, I don't know if you know this, but Hans Gruer is the one that actually started Verizon. <laughs> there you go. There's a genesis. That's how they cut out AT&T. Yep. So John sets off a fire alarm on the 37th floor to get the cops to come. But and the terrorists to realize it, and they... The terrorists. And Huey Lewis. It's hit the B square. And Huey Lewis realizes it, and he makes this call or something. Well, like, Hans calls down and says, shut off the alarm. He shuts which, off. Which is also not the German accent that I'm looking for. No. No, that's worse than the accent that I had. It's all good. I don't even know what the hell the accent was, again. So. Shut it down. Shut it down. Shut it down now. Then Huey Lewis calls over and says, hey, false alarm, whatever. And McLean's busy watching out the window and then sees the, the, the line of cop cars turn off their lights and proceed to go to the latest donut show. Yeah, but don't you think that at least one of the cops would have at least showed up to check it out? It's just done. Just it's I don't know. Way Who knows? Too much, Whatever, my friend. Way too much. And we're so we're gonna leave it off there with John McClane realizing the cavalry is not coming. Thanks for listening to Die Hard Part One. Die Hard Part Two will be dropping this time next week. Again, we appreciate you listening. Make sure to share us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter at JB's Driving, JB's Driving Podcast for the former. Appreciate all you listening. Have a growing audience. Um, in the meantime, enjoy this time of year. Having a good time. We will see you next week. <laughs>